Hello again, everybody, and welcome into another edition of Political Beats, a presentation of National Review. Find us on Twitter at political underscore beats. You can also grab the show on Facebook as well. Subscribe to our feed for new episodes through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or go right to nationalreview.com. Listen there, leave reviews where possible to help others discover the program. And we also, well, we say thank you to those who support us now and perhaps issue an invitation to those to join us at patreon.com slash politicalbeat. Support us there. Help the show stay ad-free as it is right now. There are entry-level donations for support and some voting privileges. We're knocking off another uh, episode you voted on for our summer series of episodes. Mid-level for early access and at a higher audio quality when it is released. And then upper-level bestest friends for early access, higher audio quality, monthly exclusive content episodes, remastered episodes, playlists, and more, all at patreon.com slash politicalbeats. My name is Scott Bertram. You can find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. My tag team partner standing by, as always, Jeff Blair. Jeff, how are you? Oh, I'm doing great, Scott. You know, it's overcast, gray, cloudy, rainy out here in Chicago, but I'm wearing sunglasses anyway. And the reason I am is because I'm sitting here at this piano (laughs) singing a sad, sad song. I'm wondering how long I can go on. Do you think I can improvise a tune that lasts two hours and 45 minutes? We'll see. On the flip side, I've written some songs but I'm looking for someone who might be able to sing them a bit better. I figure I figure the producer can find a way to edit it to 3 minutes and 45. A tight <laughs> 3 minute 45 for the charts. Jeff is on Twitter at EsotericCD. Our guest on today's program is a veteran journalist and author. He is a reporter at Real Clear Investigations. Currently find him at realclearinvestigations.com. He's also a a former music journalist and uh, wrote a great book called Detroit Rock City, the Uncensored History of Rock and Roll in America's Loudest City. Steve Miller is with us today. Steve, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it, man. Thanks a lot for having me. Before we get to our band, give you an opportunity here to tell us a bit about uh, your career as a journalist, both in music and in politics and what you're doing now at Real Clear Investigations. What's it all about? Well, let's see. Uh, it's a real rags to riches story. Started a small town newspaper in the Dallas Burbs. Worked on uh, up to Dallas Morning News, onto the Washington Times as a national reporter, and then into magazines and books. And so I've written for everybody from High Times to People Magazine, and uh, written seven books for true crime, and uh, a couple of rock and roll books, including, as you mentioned, Detroit Rock City. And um, and now I'm uh, I'm at Real Clear Investigations. Been there for about five years. RealClearInvestigations.com for Steve's work over there. He joins us today to talk about music and a band that's been on uh, Jeff's list for quite a long time. And, and Steve was a guest here on uh, on Hillsdale's campus last uh, academic year. And when he left, I said, you know, send me a list of some bands that you might want to cover with us. And he did, and he sent like seven, and all seven are on Jeff's wish list. So we had to narrow things down for this very first one and ended up on a band called Mott the Hoople. Before we turn to Jeff for his thoughts, uh, we send the, the uh, floor back to Steve to tell us uh, how you got into Mop the Hoople, why you love them so much, and why other people should care about this music. Well, you know, I got turned on to Mop the Hoople. Um, this was, I guess I was 15 years old, and uh, back in the, in the old days, uh, you would have... The only the way you got turned on to a lot of bands was the radio, because we had great underground radio. This is the pre-Abrams days. And... Uh, <laughs> 
And you also had TV. You had Don Kirshner's rock concert. You had In Concert. And you had Midnight Special. Uh, Mott the Hoople were on Don Kirshner's. I think that was probably late summer, maybe early fall of 73. And uh, they had done all three. They'd done Midnight Special, ABC, In Concert, and, uh, and Don Kirshner's. But uh, by the third song they did on Don Kirshner's, it was Driving Sister. Ian Hunter was playing this H guitar, had an H body and an H headstock. And uh, and they'd done all the young dudes, and then Sweet Angeline, okay. But Driving Sister just really killed me. So it was just, it was really a, um, you know, where you would see this band, you'd go, okay, I need to know more. So you'd see it, then you'd run out and buy the album and went out and bought Mott. They were touring Mott at the time and uh, bought Mott uh, for three twenty nine, I think, probably, <laughs> and uh, played it over and over. And, so uh, expensive. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and so, you, you know, you play it over and over. But when you're a kid, man, this stuff's making a huge impact and you're memorizing to this day, you, you remember, you, I still remember all the lyrics. Uh, just playing it at home, I can I can probably recite every lyric. And uh, you know, and you're looking at all the you know, you're looking at the gatefold, and you take it out, and you're reading the lyrics, and you're just everything about it was real cool. You're seeing who played on it, and you're thinking, well, who's Mick Ralphs? Who are these people? And, uh, and it's then just, you I, learn about Bad Company. Oh man! Oh God! Well, that came later, of course. That was the following <laughs> year, and then it went. And you still do your best to ignore that, but uh, uh, but but you know also we had we had Cream Circus and Crawdaddy that we could read about these bands in. Rolling Stone loved them too. Ed Ward gave that first record a great review, and but Rolling Stone were as uncool then as they are now, and uh, and so you know we went through Cream and uh, and, and and Circus and, and so on, and uh, and so you know Lester Bangs loved Mott, and we'd read it in Stereo Review. You could read interviews and that and then they had a lot of good lester Banks stuff in stereo review uh so at any rate it was one of those things you followed and then the next thing the hoople came out uh, a few months later in the spring of 74 and uh, again that was fantastic as well so you know you're just you know you all of a sudden this band is is this scrappy band that uh that, that wrote really good songs on those two albums in particular mod and the hoople the, the songwriting was uh fantastic and they kind of honed the covers that they they were they were doing in the early days and and of course eventually you go back and you you try to find out what they did uh, initially uh but boy i tell you just over the years uh, you know mott you, you always have time for mott the hoopla just migrate 
discipline list at all times. And, uh, you know, whether you had, you know, you went through a side of the hoople or really sat down and listened to like I'm a Cadillac or that, and that beautiful long acoustic guitar jam on that. It's just, they had character and that was really driven by Ian Hunter, of course. But that, all together as a band, they were really unit and you could really write. Hey, Scott, do you want to go first before I go? Uh, of course. In my little reminiscence. You can clean us up here. So um, sure. I, I'm mainly, uh, you know, in the main, new to a lot of Mott the Hoople's music as I prepared for this show. And, you know, the way I found out about them is the way most people, or many people perhaps, found out about them is hearing all the young dudes saying, oh, that's a great Bowie song, and finding out, of course, uh, it's not David Bowie's singing at all. It's, it's a totally different band altogether, though it was a David B- Bowie penned song in All the Young Dudes. And I will tell you where I began to pick up interest in what Mott the Hoople was doing. Um, one is, well, they're both uh, connected to, to Ian Hunter uh, and his solo work, which we'll talk a little about at the end, but mostly about Mott today. Uh, one is through, you know, Cleveland Rocks, which became both the Drew Carey Show theme and then, and then a, a single, actually, from presidents of the United States of America and, and going back and finding out who did the, did the original song. And then also um, another cover, uh, you know, Great White doing Once Bitten, Twice Shy. And uh, Steve talked about the power of live performances. And it's such a joy to find out how many of those Midnight Special Don Kirshner shows are still archived and available on YouTube because it's not like the British shows where everyone's lip syncing to a to a backing track. Uh, those shows are live. Those bands are playing live on on those shows, and there's something about capturing that that real moment in time. And in the early '80s, there was a, a challenger to Saturday Night Live called Fridays, and Ian Hunter and and Mick Ronson played Fridays, and they do a version. And I sent this to Jeff as we were talking about this this getting set for the show. They do a version of Once Bitten, Twice Shy on on Fridays, which just slays me. It's just unbelievable. It's one of my favorite live moments of music on television. And so having that experience got me more interested in, in Mop the Hoople generally. And it's such a joy to go back and experience this stuff. Uh, and for me, again, for the first time. I had my my wife's aunt and uncle were were in over the weekend, and I was cleaning the pool for the kids. Uh, Unfortunate, uh, uh, you know. um. (laughs) I I did a lot of folding laundry to Martha Hoople this last few weeks, okay? So I understand. So I'm playing it, and and he's out, and he's listening. And after, I mean, it was was kind of a big job. After a while, he says, man. It's been a great mix of bands you've been playing today. I love, I love all the stuff. I'm like, well, it's just been one band. It's just Mott the Hoople, but they 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 do cycle through so many different sort of themes, so many different types of of music that they try to do throughout the course of the career. And I think that explains in part why they weren't a little bit bigger. Is there is not a a specific signature sound you can apply to them. They did a lot of things, and they did a lot of things well. Um, but but there's not necessarily again one song 
all the young dudes he knew, but the rest was all very, very new to him. And he liked it all, but he wasn't sure it was all by the same band. So one of the things that you know we'll certainly talk about today during the course of the program is, is the different uh, sounds that begin to uh, mutate from album to album, where they, be- where they started, where they got to, where they shifted, where they ended. It's all a little bit different. Uh, but it's all very, very satisfactory. show i would have told you that i thought mott the hoople was like a really really great band a wonderful cult band that i you know kept as a little secret a little treasure that i held close to my heart uh, now that i've gone back and i've listened through all of the albums again preparing for this going back to review stuff i had already known i actually think this is a truly great band that everybody needs to know and i'm ready to hear stand and defend them as one of the great underrated rock groups of its era now, it's so funny to listen to Steve talk about his experiences with Mott in real time as they happen. That's why I'm so grateful that we can get guests who are, you, know, you were there as it, as it happened and aren't just like people like me and Scott who do the stuff retrospectively. I found Mott the Hoople via a compilation, of course. And what does that mean? What that means is that, like, you know, I went, you know, that's my freshman year of college, right? I was getting into David Bowie, naturally. So all the young dudes was on a greatest hits by Bowie. I was like, okay. I know that's a that's not his. I knew yeah, I could, there wasn't Wikipedia in, t- in 1998, 97, but there was something rudimentary, and I knew Mata Hoople had done that song, so I got a, 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 a two CD set, The Ballad of Mott, and you know it's not a perfect set, but it was pretty good for what it was, and it gave me that wonderful discovery where the song that I bought the boxed set for or the little set for, which is All the Young Dudes, was the weakest song on it by far. Two CDs. Every other song on that two-CD set compilation I thought was superior to all the young dudes. And then I realized, okay, this group is much, much more than what they had been made out to be. I thought they were a one-hit wonder that had that, that little fluke hit single that David Bowie gave them. Sort of the way Lou Reed you know, had Walk on the Wild Side and he never troubled the charts again, even though he was making weird albums. No, Mata Hoople were a truly great band. And they had a prehistory that wasn't even covered in that set that I went on to discover later. It's a wonderful story because it, it, it's sort of... It was the miracle band for me. It was like it, it did everything that its progenitor wanted it to do. It's like what happens if we combine the Rolling Stones with Bob Dylan, and then later on, why don't we add a little bit of glam and David Bowie as well? As it turns out, that's an incredibly intoxicating mix. And it, while it doesn't always work, and it's a little bit wild and it's a little bit unfocused, 
what Mata Hoople was able to accomplish with a really kind of a simple approach and sometimes an improvised approach as well without any kind of normal what you would consider vocal talent in any way is amazing. not sing. Ian Hunter could not sing in any normal sense, and yet both of them had incredibly expressive voices, and they could both write songs, and this was the ultimate, you know, as Steve said, the ultimate scrapper band. The band that somehow managed to sort of put out all these records that, you know, in their time kind of, you know, faded away, and then became overrated, and then became dismissed, and when you go back and you look at the discography literally from start to finish, the whole thing holds up from 69 to 74. I think almost every one of these albums is worth hearing. They are a band that evolves and it mutates and it shifts. And I think it shifts most, you know, most notably the way the personnel shifts and that, that is really how things change for them. But my God, the story of Martha Hoople is an amazing one. And before I, I get to that, is anybody here familiar with Guy Stevens? I've been sitting here thinking when I started out drinking you I went on to the door Surely just to change my life Wow I cried a tear in a beer for me I lost everything near and dear to me Namely my children and my wife I'm an idea Well, a tragic, you, tragic case. What a nut, huh? Well, why, well, well you, you want to give me the short version of his biography? Just set it up for me on a tee, and I'll explain how he got involved with Mott. Yeah, well, he was just, I mean, he was just a wild man, a producer. He'd been in the, uh, you know, he obviously he was connected with uh, Procol Harum, 
Right, he was like uh, a record jobber at first, like a DJ, right? right? Yeah, yeah, he was just kind of a guy about town and the industry and so on. Hey, Scott, do people, do, Scott do people come to the Hillsdale radio station promoting the new hit single from Columbia Records? Well, we don't play a lot of music around here, so <laughs> no. But, but, like, does the industry even do that anymore? Like, there's there's nobody who has there's that There's very gig. little work. No, no. No, right. You know, tw- 20 years ago when I was in college working at a music station, actually, it did happen. But uh, but I, I, not not these days. Not these days, but that's what Guy Stevens did. And, yeah, and then he, with Procol Harum, you know, he had this first idea. You know, Procol Harum, we think of it as a prog rock group, right? But originally they were a very Dylan-esque thing themselves. It was like the idea of give, give me a guy on a piano and a guy on an organ. And they don't have to be experts because he's thinking of Highway 61 Revisited. Bob Dylan's on piano and Al Cooper learning organ for the first time is playing organ. These guys are amateurs and the sound is so right. And that was Procol Harum's debut album as well. They went off on their own direction, leaving Guy Stevens high and dry. Oh, well, Stevens! Stevens gave the band the name, I believe. Yes, it, it was his cat. Mass- it was his cat's name. He also gave them the name for a whiter shade of pale. You know, he, somebody at a party was sick, and he said, like, "I think he just turned a whiter shade of pale, mate." You know, and uh, so you, Guy Stevens is this guy. He, he gets a job at Island Records, which is like a hip. Think of it as like Matador Records of great of you know Great Britain in that era. You know, hip indie label, but it soon become a major label. Obviously, they have connections to you know the colonies, you know Jamaica, Jamaican music, like and Indian music as well. Stevens is a hip guy, so he's great to like run the A and R department there. And he still has this dream of coming up with a new band, and was his idea for this band. What he wants is same idea: give me a pianist, give me an organist, give me some just you new know, bass guitars, drums, simple stuff. And I can, you know, if they can do Dylan meets the Rolling Stones, they can conquer the world. And uh, that's how we got 800 to get together with Mick Ralphs, you know. And uh, and I, I believe it was it was Mick Ralphs's band. Am I getting the history on this one right? Yeah, it was Mick Ralph. It was actually a Doc Thomas band. Right. It was Watts and Ralphs, and so on. And so uh, Guy Stevens came in and said, you know, why don't we do this? We can get Ian Hunter, who we knew. And we'll get him in there, and we'll have this this great band. It's kind of a super group for him. It was kind of a super group. It was yeah, it, and he gave him the name. He called he called him Mont the Hoople, which is like a, it's not the Doc Thomas Blues Band or whatever you know they were before. <laughs> right, right. It's it's this fantastical name, you know. And he 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 like renamed all the songs on the album that were written by them to make them these crazy sounding tunes because that's the Guy Stevens hallmark. His production was less production than it was sort of being hype man like he's getting really drunk and tossing chairs around the room and giving getting everyone to give their best live in you know on you know on tape in the studio but uh you know that was the way he wanted to produce that was his authentic way of making music you know it kind of goes hand in hand with like all the, the drug use and the drinking you know that's the, the, the guy steven's tragedies he couldn't harness any of this energy and his, his no. idea of producing was just to just you know just be real man you know of course being real sometimes involves you know destroying studio walls and uh you know taking lots of drugs but that leaves us with this first album the self-titled Mapahoo album, the one with the MC Escher cover with the little lizards eating themselves, <laughs> which I don't know how big MC Escher was in 1969. I grew up with him, but like maybe that was like a new and cool image back then. It's a still, it's a lovely cover. What do you think of this first? This is kind of an artificial group in a way, but it's not artificial at all because when you put this fat guy 
with sunglasses singing in this Dylan-esque voice behind this authentically wild <laughs> rock band, you get something that nobody was doing. And that's what you hear on Mott the Hoople, the self-titled debut. You would have made Ian Hunter cry if he heard you call him fat. Oh, oh well, you knew he was fat. <laughs> he was. It became an obsession with him, by the way. Later on, you start reading in, uh, in some of his, his, his stuff he wrote. But, uh, but yeah. Well, that first album came out, what, November 69, I think. And uh, I had three covers. I had the Sonny Bono cover, the Doug mm -hmm. Sam cover. And uh, what else did it have on there? The Kinks. You really got me. You really got me. Let off the, uh, let off the album. That actually was supposed to have a vocal by Mick Ralphs, but if you've ever heard it, it's an outtake. You understand why well, they stripped that vocal away. <laughs> that is one squawky voice. great singer and yet he wanted to be I think. this was my you know I, I try to go through chronologically of course so my my Mandrew Amat the Hoople uh, as, as a band proper is getting in through this debut album and those first two I mean really the first two songs you really got me that Kinks cover which is a great introduction to the band and then as as Steve mentioned this Doug Sam cover who's this great Texas artist Sir Douglas Quintet at the crossroads, and I still think that's one of their finest works. Uh, you know, they're a great band. They're also a great cover band, uh, Mott the Hoopalus. They, they can take other people's material and shape-shift it into something they do really well, and they, they play a tremendous standout version of At the Crossroads here. instrumental break it just sounds like one big jam session it's a wonderful cut and you know guy steven's idea here bob dylan singing with the rolling stones and that is what you get you know when i first before i started digging in to the background and some of the descriptions i i messaged jeff and says 
and said, boy, there's a, they sound a lot like Dylan on the first album. And they just said, that's uh, first intentional, then accidental, which which was, yeah, they, they wanted to sound like Dylan, and they pulled it off. You know, first time I, I, I heard Laugh at Me, that's like, well, that's a pretty, that's a really Dylan track. And then backsliding fearlessly, which is really is the, fun. Yeah, it's but the that, times they are changing. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, that's with God on our side and times they are changing. That is the most Dylan track you could possibly imagine. In fact, as I mentioned, my uncle, my, my, my wife's uncle was here over the weekend, played backsliding fearlessly, and he says, ah, some Dylan, huh? I'm like, no, nope, that's still not the hoople, my friend. <laughs> but, I mean, they, they pull it off. It has that acoustic ramshackle feel of, of Dylan in that time. And again, some of the couplets, some of the lyrics, uh, uh, come all ye faithful and slaughter your lambs. Your minds have been whipped by experienced hands. They they do go all out to make that Dylan comparison. I weep for the rebels, conventional ways. The loses his mind while the devious stays. And for me, it's the first half, the first, whatever, five-eighths of the album that work really well and show us what this band could be, the promise they have, their ability to play in sort of different styles, different genres. You go from that really hard rock of You Really Got Me to the more uh, sort of Texas, uh, you know, laid-back Texas slide of At the Crossroads, the Dylan-esque uh, backsliding fearlessly. You have sort of the big rock and roll move of, of Rock and Roll Queen, uh, the Mick Ralph's song on here. And people think about it as being a, a Ian Hunter band. We'll talk more about this in a bit. But you can't forget how much Mick Ralphs wrote for the band early on. Two of the tracks here are Ralph songs, just one Ian Hunter track and one they, they wrote together. So it's a great. I think it's a great introduction to the band. I don't think it's as good as um, the next album, which is kind of slagged a bit. But, um, but, but certainly that cover of At the Crossroads is one of their best. And they do Dylan about as good as you can do Dylan if you're not Dylan in backsliding fearlessly. I love this album so much, and this is just one of these great discoveries. This is this, how do you become a super fan of Monta Hopel? Okay, you get the compilation. Okay, great. Then you go get the actual albums. Oh, those are good. Then you go back to the stuff that was barely covered, and you find wow, wait, they, this stuff that they didn't even include. You thought it was, they didn't include in this material because it was bad. No, this is just as good as anything Mott would ever do. And I agree with Scott that the first half of this record is fantastic. I consider their covers to be equally as valid as their original material. I, to me, the, the miracle of a song like Laugh at Me is that it makes me take Sonny Bono seriously. Okay? How did that happen? That's a Sonny and Cher song, man. And yet when Ian Hunter sings at it and he tells you to laugh at him, well, he actually sounds a little threatening, very defiant. He makes it cool. He makes that song cool. Well, we got a lot of space. And if you don't like my face, it ain't me who's going. 
He makes at the crossroads. This is a man from like, like somewhere in like you know suburban London, England, talking about how like you can't hang around in Texas unless you've got a lot of soul, brother. And he doesn't sound phony doing it, which is a miracle because he's singing the Doug Psalm song at the crossroads again. It's funny, and of course, the one place where the vocals don't really cut it. What do they do? Well, they just says screw it, and they remove the vocals altogether. You really got me. It's fantastic in that respect. But we didn't even mention the song. Scott said it was half of a good album, but then he cheated because he's a cheater. He said it was five eighths of a great <laughs> album. Yeah, I know what he was referring to because that's that's the song that opens side two is of course Martha Hoople's their calling card. And it's like literally what what is early Mott about? It's about rock and roll queen from the opening fire up of that Mick Rouse riff. Perfect rock groove, perfect riff, perfect mix. The band just fires up like it is the Rolling Stones. They fire up like a classic, like late 60s, early 70s Stone song. I'll bet you Mick Jagger and Keith Richards heard that song and thought to themselves, uh, you know what? These kids are new. They can hang. Half Moon Bay, right? Ten minutes on site. Well, right. I mean, but I mean, you don't have to just talk about that only one song. Talk about any of these ones. What are the <laughs> ones that you love? Half Moon Bay, I thought was beautiful. I thought, uh, you know, remember they name checked that later on, four years later in uh, in Driving Sister, which I mentioned before. That song mm-hmm. they did like. Um, I thought it was. I thought that going back, and I've re-listened to it in the last week or so. That's just a really a beautiful song. It, it moves in different tempos and, and shifts all over the place. It was a Ralph's Hunter composition. And it's very ambitious, um, and you know, ten minutes on your first album, really. And uh, but I thought it was a, it was a it was a fine excursion and well produced. Just kind of like you were mentioning, Rock and Roll Queen. Like the t- the tone on that guitar is beautiful, and uh, and and I think the production overall on this. But uh, Half Moon Bay, I thought the production was especially good.
nailed the tones. They got they got all everything right in that studio. I always think of it as almost also as kind of a power play on Ian Hunter's part. He's kind of telling Guy Stevens like, "Hey, you know what? You're not our Sven Gali. I'm going to write a 15 minute long musical epic with Mick, and we're the guys who are writing the songs in this band." And that shows up, of course, on their second album, which is Mad Shadows. Another idea, Mad Shadows was a Guy Stevens uh, title idea that he had originally wanted to do with Steve Winwood. But then Steve Winwood said, screw it, I'm going to do Blind Faith. <laughs> and so he's like, well, I'm going to keep that title in the back of my pocket and I'm going to use it for Mop the Hoople instead. Uh, and again, the Sven Gali aspect there, I think, kind of irked the band. And so what happens on album number two? Well, album number two is going to be all original songs. But Guy Stevens, who is still producing, demands he will have his way as well. And so what does he do? He does this thing that becomes kind of famous in my legend. He sits Ian Hunter down, oftentimes at a piano, and just rolls tape. Yeah. And it almost kind of Phil Spector, like, he doesn't quite put the gun to Ian's head and say, like, play or die. But he basically says, play a song now. He gets the band behind him, and he says, you know, here are the chords. I want you to improvise a song. And guess what? A lot of the music on Mad Shadows sounds exactly like that. So, like it was, when, yeah. When my mind's gone, the final track on on Mad Shadows, I, I read that that's exactly what happened, and then Hunter right. makes up those lyrics on the spot. Is that true? Did that happen Absol- that way? And, as, and, as, and we have we have other outtakes. I have a 15 minute outtake of a different song that he did the same way, improvised like that in the studio. And you'd be shocked how good he is at faking lyrics like that. <laughs> the band is amazing. It's just sort of like coming up with little crescendos, and then they edit it from 15 minutes down to like you know six. What once was free. So, yeah, no, they could do it. And it's a shocker of a thing. And they learned it from Guy Stevens. And, of course, when my line's gone, okay, it's not the most focused thing you'll ever hear. But Thunderbuck Ram, okay, that was a Mick Ralph song that was done along the same lines, No Wheels to Ride. These are big, long, loosey-goosey, thunderous epics. But, gosh, if there's any one band that can get away with, like, you know, you know, hammering around like this, it's early Mop the Hoople. There's so much energy on this record, in my opinion, which is why even though everybody reviews this poorly, this one is universally panned by critics. Um, I love it. I actually think it's a really great record. It's the most underrated album they ever made. Yeah, Hunter came up with the live staple, Walking with a Mountain, on that, which is, again, beautifully produced. Beautifully produced album. It was also during, I think, at that time, when that they came over to... Uh, I think they played their first dates in America in Detroit. They uh, they did a tour. They came the first dates or aptly in uh, at the uh, East Town Theater opening. Good for place Jessica. to play. What's that? I said that's a good place to play. I mean, I know the yeah. East Town Theater too is a great venue. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, at, that was the start of the tour. That was their first. It was kind of just before the release of uh, of Mad Shadows, so it kind of foreshadowed Mad Shadows. 
and uh, and they played a whole bunch of you know they opened for Grand Funk they played all over the U.S. opening for Traffic they opened for Mountain they, that tour they opened they played the Cincinnati Pop Festival with the Stooges and uh, Grand Funk and uh, and they took a lot of it back with them too like a lot of those those bands they're going to start covering their music in the, in the next year or so as well yeah they were they were in, they were as they were out there they were influencing everybody they were I mean people were paying attention to them even though they were still kind of an opening. You know, really just an opening band. Right. They were really young. Scott, do you agree with me that this was actually, hey, bizarrely underrated, even though, like, yeah, you wouldn't go to Mad Shadows for great lyrical insights? I hate to agree with you. But I know I, you do. But I must. Uh, I was surprised when you told me how poorly received this album was in some corners, even even to this day. You know, retroactive reviews don't love Mad Shadows, but I think it's it's very good. It's, look, it, it, it's denser. It's it's more metallic. I mean, you can hear what, a little, like like a little deep purple things in some places. There's a harder edge in places. I mean, Thunderbuck Ramp. It sounds like it's supposed to sound. It sounds like if you wrote a song called Thunderbuck Ram, it better not be wimpy. That's right. right. And 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 that's exactly what a song called Thunderbuck Ram should sound like. song he ta- he takes vocals mostly instrumental there's a couple of short vocals in there but you know you you sort of slide from the sweetness at the beginning to the very dark dangerous foreboding sound of, of the band and um uh but there are other places in here one thing that i think begins to, to to sort of shine through is ian hunter's vocal style look as jeff said earlier neither hunter nor ralph's are great vocalists they're barely good vocalists but what Hunter starts on Mad Shadows is this ability to just um, emote and and just sing his throat out uh, on a song like I Can Feel. Um, man, he just is singing as hard as he can. What he lacks in finesse, he makes up for in raw power at the microphone. And that's on I Can Feel. There's uh, No Wheels to Ride. That's another great example, I think. Um that's a song that actually Mick Ralphs would uh, would sort of steal, not sort of steal, directly steal the the lyric there. I can't, I can't, I can't get enough of your love for a later song for Bad Company called Can't Get Enough. Um, it's just this this f- sort of frantic emotion. And he sort of, he, he drops the Dylan pretenses in, in his delivery at times on this album, many times on this album. No!
And so you've got a great song like No Wheels to Ride uh, with him taking lead vocals. You've got one like I Can Feel, again, where he just really sings his throat out. And um, as Steve mentioned earlier, Walking with a Mountain, that's just great, you know, great blues boogie, tons of energy. I hear that I think about one of my favorite underloved groups from America uh, around the same time, the Flamin' Groovies here in America. That same sort of just real hard energy, great live songs. Um, I think Mad Shadows is really, really good. Again, and the story, by the way, the story behind that is, is pretty great, which is that they were recording it in the same place where that the Rolling Stones were dithering endlessly over yes. sticky fingers, <laughs> you know, like, and so they were like, you know, hey, you know, let's 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 go get some inspiration from Mick and the Boys, and so that's where the whole the jumping Jack Flash, it's a gas part comes in at the end, and yes. yeah, I don't, for some that that shouldn't make any sense. It doesn't. First of all, what the hell is walking with a mountain? Nothing. It means nothing at all, and it doesn't matter. And then all of a sudden, here's some Rolling Stones for you, and it's just energy. It's pure energy. All critiques, I would say, um, like a threads of iron. Look, this band thrives on being sort of uh, unpredictable and chaotic. Hey, hey by the way, and, Scott, w- w- which would you prefer less? Would you prefer to be wearing threads of iron, or would you prefer to face the caress of steel? <laughs> I, I, B. Yeah, I guess the caress of steel. Uh, I'm just thinking of like awkward steel metal-related <laughs> like images from rock groups. But that, that's a song, though, where I think it goes a little too far off that end. It's 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 a little too chaotic. They, they go a little too far. And then on, I'd say both I Can Feel and even when my mind's gone, I, I wish that they stuck the landing a little bit better. I think both those songs go on just a little bit too long in which, you know, how do you wrap up? How do you finish this thing off? I'm not sure they nail it. Other than that, though, Mad Shadows, very good album. Hey, Steve, any other thoughts on this one? No, just, uh, you know, you, you notice that it shows, you know, each each album, and we'll, we'll go in, it shows a bit of growth. You know, mm-hmm. they keep progressing, and, uh, and 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 we'll see that as we move along to uh, to, to Wildlife. I mean, the thing, other thing I really like about this record is that it gives some indication in a way that the first one didn't entirely have, like, what they sounded like live. And this band actually was really white hot as a live act. Their legend was formed in the live arena this is you know it's hard for us to understand this now in 2022 americans right that this is a band in like 1970 could start riots at the end of their shows as the opening act okay so like they're opening for poor free you know who uh, mick rouse would later go on to start a band with like paul rogers they're opening for free and they shut down free show <laughs> just by like you know like at the end they like play a 20 minute long song that like everybody like destroys their chairs the venue's ruined at the end of the thing these guys could create excitement okay and you, you hear a lot of that on mad shadows but you also hear it on this this live album that i strongly recommend it to scott 
I know he listened to you because I demanded that he do it. I don't know, Steve, how familiar <laughs> you, you are with Live at Fairfield Halls. This is an archival thing, but it's like a legendary show of theirs. They've used part of it for their next record. Um, they were trying to tape a live album at the time, but the energy is there. Like Ian Hunter plays No Wheels to Ride, which is this slow, slow piano ballad. And yet it sounds massive and perfect, like it prefigures Guns N' Roses by 30 years. And the, and the most hilarious part is you can hear the audience in the background cheering throughout the entire quiet part of the song. Like they will not shut up. That's how excited they are to hear Ian singing this very weird and bizarre kind of, you know, strange, slow piano ballad. Um, Martha Hoople could hold an audience in the palm of their hands. It's a yeah, I know, and I'm not familiar. It's familiar with that. Although, as you say, the it was the quality that caused them to scrap that album. Is that correct? Well, they didn't. They didn't like some of the takes they got on it, um, but they mitched out because they they opened with like a live version of Ohio, which by the at that point was like brand new from Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, which is again, it's in England. What what cares London for you know the plight of like you know civilians in in Ohio State or wherever it was or Kent State University? Um, but yeah, they cover Ohio at the opening of that show and they destroy it. Honestly, I mean, I really like. The CSNY version, I kind of think Martha Hoople's version is superior. thoughts i know you don't love live albums but you are wrong i uh, i don't love live albums this one is is worth hearing to hear the way that mott sounded live the power that they brought to the stage and you know i i do like live albums in the sense that uh, when when they are able to give me an indication about how these band members play together you know so much can be sort of masked over as steve uh, joked earlier in post-production you can do a lot of things when the band is raw and really recorded raw, there's actually a new uh, ZZ Top live album called Raw. It's just the three guys before Dusty Hill passed away playing. And that was a really fascinating listen to me. I listened to that live album because I could hear just the way those three guys interacted. And listening to this live album from 1970 with Monta Hoople, I think that the value is you hear, again, how those band members play together. Uh, on No Wheels to Ride, which Jeff mentioned earlier you hear ian playing that electric piano yes you can hear the crowd in behind cheering and then you know ralph's breaks in with these just massive sounding riffs that's a loud aggressive heavy band 
That's the way they sounded in concert. Thunderbuck Ram is just gigantic in this. There's a they, they, they capture a great piano sound, um, and and then it explodes in that in that faster, harder direction. Steve mentioned this. The reason they didn't release it ostensibly was because of a, ba- a bad recording. I don't know what the real reason was, but it's not because of a bad recording. This sounds great. And you know, yes, you know. Since you know this was such a successful epic sound, uh, they immediately decided to change it up <laughs> on their next record. I mean, what actually happened, of course, is that these records weren't selling. This is great music. These first two albums, great albums, but of course, they didn't really sell anything at all. So uh, I think it was Mick Ralph who said, "Like, we're going to do some of my mix Mick Ralph's like songs." What does that mean? Well, all of a sudden, Moth Hoople's third album it doesn't involve Guy Stevens, uh, but it does involve a lot of country music. Yes, country music. Uh, this is wildlife. Well, albums named wildlife tend not to have auspicious histories. There was how I was thinking of Wings is Wildlife. Remember that one by Paul McCartney and Wings? Um, this one I think is a lot better than that, but it's definitely treated as the bizarre. This whole year, 1971, the early part of it is like the bizarre lost year of Moth the Hoople, where it didn't, they, they seemed to retreat from what their strengths were. And they hadn't quite figured out any new ones. And this album is the perfect embodiment of it. And of course, you know, because I'm a huge fan of this band, I'll find I'll tell you there are like five songs on here that I could also recommend.
this is this is this is the weird one. And since Scott, I know this is your favorite album of theirs. Oh. Uh, why don't you set it up for it? It is not my favorite. You set me up that way all the time. Um, you know, of the of the studio albums of their career, um, I know Steve's going to fight later because he likes Hoople. I, I think that's a that's a miss. That's a whiff. Wildlife comes closest to that as well. The interesting thing here that I mentioned to you is is yes, there, there are four Ralph tracks and three hundred tracks. So Mick Ralph takes a bit more more command of the of the sound and direction of the band on Wildlife. It's mostly self-produced. Guy Stevens is not involved in, in a number of these tracks. There's a, a cover of Melody. Uh, yes, the, the brand new key singer. Which is not bad, it's by not the bad. way. Lay down candles in yeah. the rain. I mean, you think that would be the most cringe thing on the planet, and yet they somehow find a little bit of soul in it. I don't know. But the thing that I think is interesting here is the dynamic between Ralph's and Hunter. Because on Wildlife... You know, Mick yeah. Ralph steps up, says, hey, hey, all right, Ian, I'm going to show you how to write a ballad, okay? And uh, uh, here, I got one. It's called it's called Wrong Side of the River. In fact, he's so he's so slight on the vocals, it almost sounds like a female singing the vocals. He does not have that heftiness. And it's like, all right, there's, there's my ballad. And Ian says, uh, all right, oh, yeah? And he spits out Waterloo, which is... Which is about, this, about his divorce, right. too. Which, <laughs> it, that's, the, that's the street he and his wife and family lived on, and this piano and string-led ballad about his, uh, you know, this melancholy and regret. He's, I'm five, you know, it's Ian Hunter. like, I'm five years older than you. I've, I've lived a life. I can write a ballad. And I saw And so, you know, Mick Ralph comes back and says, all right, we're going to do this country thing, and uh, it must be love. And we're going to bring in the steel guitar player, Jerry Hogan. He's going to play on it. It's going to be a great little country-tinged song. And Ian says, yeah, okay, well, um, I got original mixed-up kid, which is the best song on the album, which, again, uses steel guitar, has that sort of lilting country feel to it, and he one-ups him again. So the the interesting thing on Wildlife for me is the way those two guys sort of try to one-up each other and play off yeah, each other. Yeah, Hunter keeps and submarine Hunter every time. Every, every yeah. time now, yeah. right, yeah. The original mixed-up kid Must have been at the end of the line When they gave out the forms to sign For someone Uh, Steve, do you have any thoughts on this one? This weird redheaded stepchild of the Mothahoopa family. Well, I'm with you on uh, on the cover of Laydown. I thought it was fantastic. I did a great job of that. 
And uh, at the time, I remember they got played a little bit on, uh, you know, on, on FM radio, in fact. Uh, and this is a, this this album again. They keep showing this progression. They keep they keep coming up with newer sounds. And uh, like I said, I think Guy Stevens produced one. I think just one song, "Wrong Side of the River," on this. And uh, and they also included uh, the one of the songs from uh, from from Croydon, the uh, keep, version of uh, "Keep a Knockin." Yeah, yeah. Right. And so they did. I guess they, they I, by I, far I, the most energetic thing on the record. You know, too. Right. That's right. prolific they were i don't know we mentioned that they are mixing it up and, and ralph's is writing and, and hunter's writing but these sometimes i wonder when i look at this and i go why did you put keep a knocking on there we did were you out of material and i think for this they also had recorded um a mountain song long red i believe yeah and, which and is actually not a bad song you know yeah, i mean yeah it's it's kind of, idea, they, also, right? they also did like a weird kind of misbegotten cover of this uh Danny Witten crazy horse thing called Come On Baby Let's Go Downtown. This is a single. Yeah. yeah, it's a great song played by Crazy Horse because Danny Witten is a despair, desperate junkie. Whereas, yeah. like, you know, Ian Hunter feels it just doesn't seem right when he's singing that song. He does not feel comfortable in their in the band's mouth. It just seemed like, you know, I don't know. It, it seemed like they, they thought the music was right, but the vibe was all wrong for them. Yeah, no. you're right. They're they're kind of like they don't know exactly what they're doing right now. They're they're kind of stumbling around. They did Midnight Lady, another one of these, you know, kind of nice and catchy but not very distinctive non-album singles. No, but you know, and the, the thing is too, they keep coming back. They keep they are playing live, and we mentioned before what a you mentioned what a heavy live band they were, and these guys were working constantly. They were always they were on broadcast. They were just working so hard. When you look at their gigography. I mean, they're just playing. It's, there's points they're playing like 10, 12 nights in a row, you know, and they keep bouncing back to America. They didn't have any lack of support from their label. I think that, that, that the label really, really believed in them, and they were on Atlantic in the U.S., and they just keep keep coming back, and I think that, that really eventually it's going it, to, you know, as we'll see in the future here, it's going to bear fruit, uh, but they were just relentless. It doesn't doesn't bear fruit in the as as soon as they expect, or maybe even as deservedly as it should, because of what comes next. I'll just say one last thing about wildlife. You know, I, you know, Scott jokes about how like Hunter was clearly like you know, you know, basically uh, you know sniping uh, Mick Rouse with, with every one of his songs. And, but I will point and, out. And by that, the way, Jeff, just real quick, each of those songs comes directly after the Ralph. Right, song. exactly. Yeah, okay. that that was the my point. Song. I was going to say Ralph gets the last word. 
with Home is Where I Want to Be, which I actually yeah. think is one of the best songs on the album. And then it goes to that live Keep a Knocking. So lately, so Ian just, just has mercy. <laughs> it just lets him get the last, gets, gets the last word, doesn't insist on another ballad, B-side, or something like that. But it's a really beautiful song. And, and I think actually the, the play out, the instrumental play out on the second half of it is what justifies it more than anything else. One of the things that's forgotten, you know, we talk about Hoople as a songwriting, kind of, kind of a battle sometimes between Ian Hunter and Mick Ralphs during these, you know, at least up until 73, is that the rest of the band are great. Like, this is a great ensemble band. I mean, mm-hmm. that was what, that was exactly what uh, Guy Stevens saw in them in the first place, is that, you know, they just kind of like CCR, you know, they just like settle into a groove and they can make something really worth hearing, no matter what it is they're playing. And, the bizarrest part of all is that what they started playing next was this material that they were working up for their fourth, and at that point, they thought it was their last album. They had a four-album contract with Island Records. All right? None of these records had sold. Wildlife, as the weird country ballad turn in Mont's discography, guess what? It sold even less than the first two. So this is your last shot. What are you going to do? They work up a fantastic batch of material. Some of this music is just some of the more like tight, rocking, well-written, epic, catchy stuff they ever put together. So they start recording it. They're always in studios recording stuff. This band, they're recording it, and it's just it's not sounding right for some reason. Like it's lacking the punch that it's supposed to have. What are they going to do? This is their last shot with, with, with tail suitably tucked between their legs. They return to Guy Stevens and they say, Guy, we need your help. We need your help. Save us. Save this album. And so Guy Stevens basically extracts his pound of flesh. He's like, all right, you want me to help you? I'll help you. Uh, I'll give you a great album. The first thing you got to do is throw away everything you've already recorded, all of it. It's garbage. It's junk. Toss it in the trash. Second thing you have to do is everything is going to be recorded live in one take in the studio. 
That's it. Deal with it. You've already been practicing this music for the last five months anyways. So we're going to play it live, and then I'll put some strings on a song or two later if I feel like it. And they did it, and they came up with Brain Capers, which is, for most Mother Hoople fans, they'd say like their greatest album prior to David Bowie getting involved with his band. ridiculously underrated records of the hard rock era this is the album that deep purple wished it had put out mm-hmm. prior to machine head this is the album that the rolling stones wondered like why can't we do this as easy as we used to anymore this is like a shockingly underrated album and it's an album that also opens with one of my favorite song titles of all time which i will not spoil but before you guys or before i say anything more rather does anybody have thoughts on brain capers and the Unimprobable return of Guy Stevens. Oh, it's it, I'm with you though. It, it's behind uh, Mott and the Hoople. This is my, uh, you know, we'd come in for studio albums. This would come in third. It was, uh, I, I, it was, it was terrific. And uh, and again, the, uh, the the production Guy Stevens really knew what he was doing, and, uh, and how they 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 did a lot of the, the keyboards were sounding really really solid on this. In fact, they kind of. It helped a little bit. I think Verdon Allen probably made some noise and wanted to be part, more part of the, the situation, and it worked. And uh, you could hear he had kind of like some – they put some Uriah Heap-like keyboard mm. bombast on yes. it. On, on oh, John Lord. I hear a ton of John Lord. Yes, hey, yes. There's some John hey, Lord hey, on there. Yeah, it's, it's really, really – I mean, think, think about like space trucking, like da 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 And then yeah. you think about Death Mid or Santa Claus. It's the same yeah. kind of like keyboard-driven yeah. thing. And then another uh, live staple, Sweet Angeline, was part of this as well. And I'm surprised that that that, that a couple of these didn't stick in there in the in the live uh, in the live set, but uh, as they progress. But anyway, it it stands on its own. It's it's just a fantastic record. It is, and it didn't chart anywhere. Didn't chart in the U.S. Didn't chart in the U.K. And yet, I think here, at least to this point, you have the most uh, distilled, honest version of what the band wanted to be and and could be. Uh, Jeff Namecheck, Deep Purple. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a real sort of hard rock uh, uh, message here uh, on, on Brain Capers from uh, virtually start to, to finish. And, you know, they did it live. They, they might have liked some retakes, but it, you know, as I mentioned from, like, from the live album, part of the beauty of Brain Capers is you hear the band playing with each other uh, and playing off 
each other. I will I will allow Jeff to talk about his favorite song in, in a moment. The second track on the album is, again, a cover, and it's one of their best. And Jeff reminded me in the lead-up to the show, this is a song he introduced to you, the Political Beats listener, four and a half years ago or so on our, uh, our best covers episode, a song by Dion, Your Own Backyard, right? And it's one that I'm sure the band took to it, especially Ian Hunter took to because it's one he could have written himself. You know, the, the, the hard guy, uh, Donovan's Luck, uh, cried, a, uh, cried a tear in my beer, I lost everything near and dear, namely my children and wife. Well, that, that happened to him. His wife took kids, said, I, I want nothing to do with the rock and roll lifestyle, and went away. And then there's redemption at the end. Uh, I do it straight, I do it so much better, uh, you know, off the drugs, off the alcohol, feeling better about yourself. It's this cautionary tale of, 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 you know, booze and drugs, but it's just such a fantastic cover. Since I've been straight, I haven't been in my cups. I ain't shooting down, I ain't using up. You know what I'm still as crazy as a loon, even though I don't run out of cups food. But thank the good Lord God that I had enough. I got a friend and his name is Robinson. He told me, don't have to be stoned. Get to know a friend. Believe me, you're all beautiful people just the way you are. Tell me what is that stuff got me you so far? I've been sitting here thinking, I've been waking, I've been thinking. Well, I don't have to sit around. And there's, there's this also this beautiful secondary layer of, of self-referentiality in it too because Dion he has that, that line where he says I got a friend and his name is Robert Zim mm-hmm. he's talking about Bob Dylan Rob, Bob, Bob Zimmerman of course when Ian Hunter sings it it's a joke because Ian Hunter is a guy who's a Bob Dylan imitator <laughs> singing that line which is just like one little secondary layer of irony that adds like a little grace note to what is as you said I think is one of the great I don't need to make the case. I already made the case. It's one of the greatest covers I've ever heard. Uh, the Moon Upstairs, uh, late on the album, just this heavy thumping. This is where, you know, the Highway Star, Space Truck, and Deep Purple Sound comes straight on through. Just a, a stomp of a song. Darkness, Darkness might be one of Mick Ralph's best songs here. But again, listening to something like Darkness, Darkness, it is just no surprise that Mick Ralph's would want to find someone to sing his material better. Um, better than Ian Hunter could. Uh, I kind of like Mick's squawkiness uh, on that. Yeah, 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 he does sound like a parrot, but 
Yeah, I don't know. There's there's an urgency to his vocal. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Um. And let's see. Um. Steve mentioned Sweet Angeline, which is a great cover. Oh, I, I want to talk about Second Love. Um. Man, it sounds so much like, like like Shine a Light, like the, the, those those post party yeah. come down Stones songs, which should not be a total surprise. Jim Price plays horns on Second Love. He played those horn parts with the Stones too. Uh, that's a great song here on Brain Capers. I don't think it's their best, but it's awfully close. And again, before the uh, influence and intervention of one David Bowie, it's about the most clearly distilled version of Mop that I think you could find. I mean, it's just a pure joy. It opens with, with the, the happiest Christmas song of all time, Death May Be Your Santa Claus, uh, which, of course, that wasn't the original title of the song. That's another Guy Stevens thing. I think he read it in a book somewhere, and he thought, that's a great name for a song. And the real name of the song is How Long. But what this song is, it's Verdon Allen and Ian Hunter collaborating. You can tell this is genuinely a song that's driven by the organ. I said earlier mm-hmm. I made reference to Deep Purple and John Lord, or to Space Truck in, in particular. This song is driven by just the, the crazy wild rhythm and the hotness of the miking of that rhythm, yep. and then all of a sudden that, ooh, just it, literally the uh, the amplifier that his organ is fed through is overdriven, so it's a hot sound that sounds like a guitar. You think there's guitar on that, but there isn't. The guitar is not played where you expect it to be played, and then you just have Ian just throwing up how long before you realize you've strayed from the good to the bad, and it's just the rhythm is thrown off. It is the proof of concept the mop the hoople was somehow more about an attitude than even a lyric and any one word that ian hunter sang it was about how he was singing it and and the, the tone with which that band played that music i love that song i could argue that it is the greatest mop the hoople song of all time about brain capers is that i wish i could say that the other greatest song of all time is the journey but it's not and this is the one re- one place where guy stevens hurt them because remember i had told you guys that they'd already recorded like half of these songs or you know you know preliminarily and then they went to guy and guy said you gotta throw it all out and start all over again so they this is a, a long epic it, it, it ends side one and it's actually reprised at the end of side two and it's nine and a half minutes long. The version on Brain Capers is okay. It's fine. You get the idea where the drama is supposed to be, but it does not 
work. It's clumsy and it's a little bit hacked out compared to that original version, which is a lot of people would argue, including Dale Griffin, who's you know a member of the band, said it is the single greatest recording the Mop Hoop will ever put on tape. That long epic piano ballad that swells up into the chorus where you know Ian sings, you know, it seems that I've lost just a little bit on the journey. Then there's like the being female girls come in and it doesn't sound cliche. Boy, Martha Hoople could get away with a lot of things that you would otherwise characterize as like cliched hack sins, the same way the Stones could put in like singing girls and it didn't sound phony. Gosh, The Journey is a magnificent song, but nobody ever heard that wonderful original version until years and years later. Uh, so it's Grand Capers could be their greatest album, but it's a little bit compromised in that one respect, in my opinion. Talk about who David Bowie is? We spent okay. 10 hours previously. Yeah. Go back and check the archives. <laughs> well, let's talk about the failure of Brain Capers. A great record, but as yeah. Scott pointed out, it didn't even chart, didn't make a dime. Band goes out and has to tour over and over again. I think what, there is some Shitsville gig in the middle of nowhere in Switzerland, of all places. You'd think there aren't any bad places to be in Switzerland because it's Swiss, right? You know, it's just like, it's, you know, it's Zurich at the end of the day. How bad can it be? But this is the moment where they're in March of like 1972 where Mount the just bottomed out. They said, we're done. We quit. You know, I think they said, you know, notify the press. We're, 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 once we're done with this tour, we're breaking up. And, of course, it, it got in Melody Maker and the New Musical Express and all of those things. And uh, David Bowie happened to be reading the musical trades. This is pre-fame David Bowie. He's in the just about to start recording Ziggy Stardust. Hunky Dory, which is now retrospectively recognized as this classic album, had sunk without a trace in the charts. It was not famous. It was not hits. Nobody cared about changes at that time. So David Bowie was actually himself kind of a nobody. But he was like, I do not want to see this happen if I can prevent it. So he literally ran up to Mapa Hoople like, you know, a week later and said, if I could give you a song that I guarantee will be a, a hit, could I keep you from breaking up? And they're like, okay, try me. <laughs> and the song that David Bowie played for them is All the Young Dudes. And this is the inflection point, of course, in Mott's career, the moment where everything changes for them. But anyone had a heart, he wouldn't want to turn around.
And so I will not say anything else. I wanted to know first, Steve, if you had any thoughts on Martha Hoople becoming glam. Well, what was curious about the uh, the Bowie offer was first he wanted to give him Suffragette City. Right. They wanted drive-in Saturday. And <laughs> they, so all the young dudes was a compromise. Um, and so obviously uh, Bowie was, you know, he, he knew that he was going to be a star, even even though Hunky Dory wasn't doing well. He had, he'd, he had uh, Ziggy Stardust ready. And uh, and he was also in the hit making business because he was he was loved uh, Iggy Pop and he was gonna he was gonna do Raw Power too. Um, yeah, and he did Lou Reed. You know, he revived he Lou Reed's Lou career. Reed, oh, Lou Reed with Transformer, and we can get into that. But uh, and we, I got a lot to say about the whole. The problem was David Bowie thought he could produce. David Bowie was a lot of great things in terms in terms of an artist. He couldn't produce. And so when you listen to all the young dudes, the, uh, the drums are, sound so bad that you want to, and this is another thing that bothers me, he has Mick Ronson around him all the time. Mick Ronson's one of the great producers mm-hmm. of all time. And so at any rate. Mick so Ronson would later join this band. <laughs> yes, exactly. So he had him right there. And he had made a star that he, he had handled really, Bowie's name was on Transformer, but it was, it was Ronson. Uh, that was handling everything. You'll see there was a, a made, kind of like the making of Transformer. Lou Reed actually, who compliments no one, came out and said what a, what a great producer Mick Ronson was. And, and, he, and he truly was. But at any rate, now we're on to, uh, now we're on to all the young dudes, which really did, did well for them. Not a favorite of mine at all. It's probably one of my least favorites. But, uh, but hey, man, you know, if it got him on the charts, it got him going again. Uh, this, that's good enough, right? It's hilarious. I think we're all going to – I don't feel exactly the same way as you, but I think we may all be agreed. I want to say this before I let Scott go. This is one that's sort of – I don't think there's anything really to criticize about it. I don't think the drums sound that bad. I think the point – when people criticize the drums on All the Young Dudes, the album, not the song itself, but the album, what they're criticizing is the David Bowie, quote, sound because this is – uh, it was actually Iggy Pop, of all people, who made this point about Bowie later on. I mean, he's talking about The Idiot, which is actually, I actually think, is Iggy's best solo album, but it doesn't sound anything like Iggy Pop normally does. This is during the Berlin phase. And so he said, you know, David was using me as a guinea pig, as a sounding board, as an experiment for concepts that he was later going to use on his records, which is exactly what happened there. And it's what happened here. Because this is 1972, but this is the sound of Drive-In Saturday. Okay, you hear Mama's Little Jewel, that's Drive-In Saturday. That's Sorrow, that's Diamond Dogs, all the way into 1974. Mama's Little Jewel, just as school, fresh from the nuns that made you.
that was Bowie using Mapa Hoople as a way of like saying, well, what would it sound like if really good music was produced using these ideas I have? That's the criticism that everybody gives him. And I think that's what you're hearing when you listen to all the young dudes as an album. And it's one of the reasons why the album hasn't lasted for me that much either. There are a lot of alternate versions of these songs that are done earlier from the Brain Capers era, like One of the Boys and Mama's Little Jewel. I like them better then. I like them better when they don't have that thin sort of Bowie-like sound. But on the other hand, I can't blame him. He gave them all the young dudes. Do people actually dislike this song? Are we going to just like be too cool for school here and no. claim all the young dudes is a bad song? I like it. Come I on, don't. Steve. I do. You don't like it? No. I you don't like don't. it when Ian gets up at the end and says, hey, you, you in the front, <laughs> I want a piece of you. I mean, that's really awesome. I love that dialogue. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to stand out on this one. I just right, it just never, I mean you know in comparison to the rest of the songs that they I mean it, it does seem ironic that the song that would catapult them to uh, I guess fame uh, would be the one that I don't like. <laughs> and, but and yet it provided the impetus for them to go forward and to create the two great albums that followed this. Now, Scott, what do you think about both that song and the rest? I, uh, we're all in agreement, which I'm, I guess, surprised by as an outsider to, to the band, um, that all the young dudes, the album named after the song they are most well uh, known for, best known for, ended up being kind of a, uh, you know, the way I describe it is very it's few something of these... they're not. It's making yeah. it into something they're not. And I don't know if it's in the delivery or the emotion. Like I mentioned earlier, you know, Ian Hunter singing on. On that second album, he's just singing his life out. He's singing for his life. He's singing his throat yeah. off. And this it, is David Bowie's obsession. It's not. Yeah, Anna and I think it comes through in the performances. There are, there are not a lot of things here that ended up sticking with me. Whether it be the hooks, whether it be the performances themselves. Um, there's nothing necessarily bad here. I mean, like Sucker. Sucker is, it's a, it's an okay song. It, it reminds me a ton of T Rex. I got a green light, red. Ground is weird. Oh, um, that's 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 the one undeniably weak track. That was like give the organist yes. some so he doesn't complain. Yeah. Um, you know, Mama's little Julie. You guys talked about it's it's, it's an okay song. Jerk and Crocus. You know, decent, but you don't like the bad rocker. company cover. Okay, so yeah, there's two things I mentioned here. You can you can find the seeds of Bad Company's debut album here in two places. One is Ready for Love. Uh, literally the same song without the it's, the, the ending the chopped song. off. Uh, it, it, and, it, and it's got mixed wonderful voice instead of Paul Rogers. <laughs> uh, he, he would get it done by a better vocalist uh, on, on the Bad Company debut. And then one of the boys, which I think might be my favorite song on All the Young Dudes. It's a Hunter yeah. Ralph's co-write. 
uh, to lyrically, how to form, how to remain, how to be a great band. So you, there's a lot of inside music talk uh, on these Mott the Hoople tracks through the years. And this is one where Mick, you know, Mick took, Mick Ralph took uh, the, the lyrical hook from an earlier song for Can't Get Enough. Here he takes uh, the, the melody parts. There are some melody parts on one of the boys that he will later cop and use on Can't Get Enough from Bad Company's debut album. And this, I think, is the one place on the album, too, where Ian's vocals come alive. They're more playful. They have that sort of arrogant uh, Ian Hunter edge to them that doesn't appear in a lot of places on this album. They have a little fun with uh, you know the phone ringing, what two minutes or so left to go in the song. You hear part of it through the, the oh, earpiece. All that, all that crap and noise that piss out of me. I, yeah, I, see, I like that. Okay, I prefer the single edit that cuts it all out. Just gives <laughs> me the meat of the song. I agree. That's a great group, and there's there's an early version of that. I don't know if you listened carefully to the box set or whatever. That's it's, I think also just got the same kind of like easy easy swing and easy groove to it. It also does sound incredibly bad company ish, which is it's just I know that's why you singled it out, right? It's just it is just it, it, what I realized when I heard one of the boys is like, oh oh wait, so that's where that bad company sound came from. That's Nick <laughs> Ralph. Oh, now I get it. Now I get it. But I do think it's funny that we all agree that the big commercial revival for Mott is, you know, is the album that none of us really kind of love. It's respectable. You know, we're, we're, we're talking this down, but this is a solid B album. There's nothing – there's like one bad song on it. Everything else is respectable. The last – it ends with this ballad called Sea Diver, which is a big fan favorite. But I just think, you know, Ian Hunter has done a lot of these. And this is the weakest of them, so I don't, you know, I don't really even feel like I need to mention that one that much. Um, and I think really what matters the most is that this is like them getting life support. It's like they pull right. them out of the lake, you know, you know, you know, Bowie gives them mouth to mouth, pours all the water out of their lungs, they start breathing again, tottering upwards, and then they get healthy. Don't want to stay alive when you're 25 And when you're stealing clothes from moms and sparks And Freddy's got spots from ripping up the stars From his face, funky little boat race The television man is crazy Sam with juvenile delinquent wrecks Oh man, I need have a burst of confidence, commercial success, and hype, 
And I got to say, I don't know where Scott is, but I know where Steve is going to be on these last two albums. And I agree with him completely. And I would actually like him to set this 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 follow up. up. This is the big follow up. This is them proving, hey, we're not just David Bowie saving our lives and giving us magic fairy dust. You know, by the way, Sweet Jane, I didn't even mention it. Decent cover, you know, but that's a pure David Bowie song. They would never have covered it without him. All right. We're going to put out an album that represents us. Our purest, I think, our purest possible artistic statement. In the meantime, Verd Allen, their organist, leaves, although he, he still contributes a couple of songs to the band. And the result is Mott, 1973's Mott. <laughs> Tell us what you think of this one. Well, this is the one that really put him on the map. Again, disregarding the all the young dudes uh, situation, which, by the way, it's just frustrating to listen to it because I'm thinking, man, this could have been really something, you know. And so it is It's because the songs were nice uh, for the most part. But uh, but at any rate, uh, Mott came out and this was the one. It had everything it had in the U.S. It had the great cover. I yes. The, yeah. The British version was terrible, um, but I like my my Augustus Caesar cover. I mean, whatever. <laughs> well, they had this wonderful cover, and I mean, when you saw it in the store, you're like, okay. And and that, but by the way, back then that was part of what got you, you know, because you're a kid, you wanted the younger buyers. Where we were younger buyers, you're like, okay, you want a good cover, and and really you had to pay attention. And it really that cover was wonderful. It just jumped right out at you, um, and it was, you know, and oddly, it was just you know, four guys, you're like, okay, who are these, you know, that, that was the weird thing. And, uh, it was very simple. It's actually a very simple cover in its it own is. way. It, but it, but it got it across. And then you started hearing the songs on the radio. You hear it all the way from Memphis. You're like, wow, this is and every song on that was really terrific. I mean, whiz kid, Honolulu, boogie violence had the, 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 the dust up in the studio where they captured it. They claimed it was done. It was, it was, uh, you know, actually done at the time. Him for the dudes was a fantastic, I was, again, that was Vert and Alan, uh, to co-write on that. Um, that was a, a beauty, uh, five minutes of, of a really nice ballad. Uh, the ballad of Mata Hoople, also nice. And then I'm a Cadillac, Al Camino Del, Doloroso. That was a Ralph's thing. Seven minutes plus, and give me and, all seven minutes of that, man. I love yeah, it. Yeah, I, I never get tired of listening to that. That acoustic then, guitar play out, I love it every oh, second. Oh, it's of just it, beautiful. Yeah. 
And then they end side two with I Wish Was Your Mother. Uh, you know, again, uh, Hunter invoking Bob Dylan. And just, I mean, every song on there was a gem. And it's, it's rare you say that, you know? I actually think, well, I mean, I'll get to this at, at the end. I don't know, but I think I Wish It Was Your Mother. Maybe that's the greatest Mother Who song ever. This is album This album is, is everything they wanted it to be. It's perfect. It, it's them absorbing every one of their influences. This sounds like the same band that made the debut album, but it sounds like the same band that made all the young dudes. And the only reason they can do that is because it has basically all the same members. Verdon Allen has left partway through it, okay, but he still gets some of the songwriting credit, and it's very organ-heavy in that respect. But, of course, Mick Grouse is his final hurrah, and the band without him it becomes a different band. Um, I... I guess, you know, you can do a lot if you begin and end your album with two of the greatest rock songs <laughs> of the year. So I, you could have a lot of tripe in between all the way from Memphis and I Wish I Was Your Mother and it wouldn't matter. The miracle, therefore, of Mott is that this is much more theatrical. You can def- This is not Brain Capers era Mott. There's, mm-hmm. there's, there's, the, there's the David Bowie inflected trajectory in the songwriting there. And yet it doesn't seem phony or fake or forced in any way. I just love this kind of film. I guess mutation or maturation of their sound. Scott? It's the best album. It's a classic album. It's so good. I can't believe it's taken me so long to to hear it. I mean, quite frankly. Um, this is, you know, I, I did want to ask it. It sounds like you're leaning toward this way, which is, 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 is Brain Capers a more uh, honest version of what the band wanted to be, or is it Mott? I, both i think both. both equally so it's just before and after bowie it's yeah. it's it's a it's a b a d or whatever you do it you know um, b b b b a b i guess is what it is all the way to memphis is probably my favorite mott song that is so good and and this is one of those times where i listen to it and i, I, I again i message jeff i said man that just has that great sort of Roxy music sort of rock. And then I was like, well, check the credits. Yeah. And a- Andy McKay <laughs> plays saxophone. Yeah. <laughs> so it makes a little bit of sense. Man, that is such a good song. The way that it rolls into the chorus. It's a mighty long way down rock and roll. Um, wait, slammed into that, pa- that piece. And it's a song about losing your guitar, too. Of all things, the a most true rock story. and roll story I've ever. A true yeah. story of Mick Ralph's losing his guitar. That wonderful piano line throughout the whole thing. Man, that is just an amazing song.
slammed in the Wiz Kid, which has one of Mick Ralph's best riffs. That riff will, you know, log itself into your mind and won't leave for weeks at a time. Sounds like Mick Ronson playing on some of that Bowie stuff, too, uh, like Aladdin Sane. That's what Mick Ralph sounds like on WizKid. Great, great track. And then uh, I don't think anyone's talked about it yet, but I got to tell you, uh, Honolulu Boogie, that's the best hook they've, they've, they've written. That's the best chorus hook they've written. What a wonderful song, accentuated by the horns, a uh, story about a rock and roll conversion in the in the lyrics. I get my kicks on guitar licks. I sold my steel toe shoes. Anthemic, less than three minutes. Um, we haven't asked the song so directly in the, in in this episode, but why was this not a hit? Why were Mop the Hoople not bigger? This is like exhibit A for me. Less than three minutes, massive hook, great song, huge chorus, and yet, a you year know, too late. It didn't spring him, right? I mean, it did okay. Year, this album, I just yeah. say, in my sense of the charts and where things were, it was just one year too late. I just, I 1972 just we could have done it, but 1973, no. Yeah. Um, and then even later, like, violence is sort of this off-kilter thing. I love the fact that, you know, the, the chorus, of course, is violence, violence, and what's under the violence but violins, which right. I don't which think is... Which is, by the way, Kate Bush stole that idea. Later, <laughs> you know, remember for Never Forever, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, By the way, but the thing about violence is that that's an Elton John song by any other name, and they should not be able to get away with it. But like when he's singing it on the piano, it, it, it is like almost—it's almost like a Disney number. That's like a show tune. Ian Hunter singing a show tune, and you got to get away. You got to sing it with such passion and such conviction to get away with that. Then he manages to do it. I mean, his voice cracks every time he goes and hits the high note. It's—it's yeah, yeah. it's ridiculous. that he does the same thing later on marionette on the next album too but like it, these you know these these weird sort of theatrical conceits on that and on whiz kid and on uh i guess i'd say like you know uh 
you know, him for the dudes is kind of the most self-regarding thing. There's these two songs that, that end up sort of like, you know, self-mythologizing the, the band. There's him for the dudes, which is the Verd now in tune. And then, of course, there's the, the, the reason we all know which gig went really bad for Mata yes. Hoople is because it's, it's right there in the title track of Ballad of Mata Hoople, 28th March, 1972, Zurich. Um, so we, we know where it was and when it was. Uh, but they're both they're both great in the old kind of mad shadows he kind of a way of Mama From my mind From my mind From my mind I mean when I said you could almost look at all the young dudes as an album that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Like if you took it out of the discography and you said this is the one that came from Brain Capers, you it know. would be like, well, they must have taken two years off or something like that. But it sounds like a logical progression. It's, it's so weird, Jeff. I again, I listen to things chronologically. When I would go back, like I was when I was cleaning the pool over the weekend. I, I just skipped all the young dudes. I went right from Brain Capers to Mott, and that's just a perfect transition. It just, it, it just right. works. It works. It works. It sounds like the same band. Boy, they were throwing away such beautiful songs on this record, too. There's a B-side. I actually sent it to you separately, Scott. Yeah. Uh, you know, okay, we've, we've talked several times during the show about how like, Ian Hunter alone at a piano. It's a trope for Mott, and boy, they get away with it because Ian is just really gifted at this thing. There's a B-side from this era called Rose. I don't know if it was the B-side of All the Way from Memphis or Honolulu Boogie. You've never heard it, almost certainly, unless you've got like the random compilation that I did in freshman year. It's the most beautiful, beautiful little sort of tiny ballad dedicated to some girl you've never heard of that has some history that we'll never know. Uh, when it goes into that final conclusion at the with the final verse, where Ian again just hits those high notes that he can barely reach, but he gets there by pure conviction alone, uh, you're just like, wow! So this is this is why everyone loves Martha Hoople. This is the stuff that you can't fake, and that that you you, you cannot you uh, you, you cannot con your way through the, the little hidden tracks. Hey, Rose. 
Well, I mean, I would just end by saying I Wish I Was Your Mother, I think, may be actually my favorite Mob Hoople song of all time. And it's a song that, that actually is, is as close as Ian Hunter, in my opinion, ever came to like getting at Dylan without doing Dylan, which is to say getting at that spirit of Dylanism without you know <clears throat> being literal, backsliding fearlessly or whatnot. This is a song, again, to some girl, some damaged person who's as equally damaged as Ian Hunter is, uh, you know, and, and and Mick Ralph, instead of playing guitar, he switches to mandolin. He plays mandolin throughout the song, and I'm a sucker for mandolin. I already featured this on our favorite closing tracks episode for our Patreon episodes. Uh, but instead of like glam, this is folk rock. This could have come off of a Rod Stewart album from 1971, and it would have been the best song on that record, frankly, if if, if Rod had sung it. Actually, you could absolutely imagine Rod Stewart singing this song, singing, I wish I was your mother, I wish I'd been your father, and then I would have seen you, would have been you as a child, played houses with your sisters and wrestled all your brothers, and then who knows? We might have felt a family for a while. It's such a wistful sentiment. It's the beautiful way to close an album that isn't just like glam or artifice. There's such heart and there's soul. And yes, I actually do think if you say, what's the spirit of Mott? The spirit of Mott comes from this album. It's no use me Too far out to take it You'll have to try and shake it from my head favorite album steve or do you prefer the follow-up boy it's too tight to call i gotta say you know well, the f- first thing we need to establish is that mick ralph's leaves uh, between these two records and so he's done i think he felt squeezed by ian hunter i think ralph's, so yeah ralph's left uh really actually right at part of a tour it looks like if you look that they they were in the u.s and he he backed out and they had to go back to england and do some rehearsals to break in um, Luther uh, Grosvenor from Spooky Tooth, who joined them. And so um, so they kind of interrupted some dates and came back to the U.S. to finish the tour, supporting uh, supporting mine. And, and, and so the new album now, you've had Verd Dallin leave, and then you've had Mick Rouse. Mick Rouse, of course, one half of the songwriting team of Mom the Hoople. So this last album, The Hoople is what it's called, is very much an Ian Hunter project. 
And what do you think of it? I love the album. I think it was, and you know, and here's the most, did anybody notice the production on this is Phil Spector-ish? Oh, for sure. I mean, for the golden age of huge. rock and roll gives the game away from the start. It's right. huge, huge production. And they did it such, it would have been wonderful if they could have got Phil Spector. And I think the only song on there with any... Hey, any, are you aware of what Phil Spector was up to during the 70s? Be very glad they <laughs> yeah. didn't get Phil Spector. There would have been at least one shooting there, death there, in there the definitely band. would have been some shooting. But, uh, but I think uh, the one song on here I think that has Ralph on is Roll Away the Stone, which is recorded before yes. he left yep. and, uh, in 73. But, uh, but no, uh, you're right. It's an Ian Hunter vehicle, and, uh, and it's all the better for it because he really, really... It's masterful, I think, again... Um, he's just showing this band is they were invigorated by Bowie and the confidence level just rose and they realized that they they realized how good they were I think and it gave them the uh, the, the ability to to take chances uh, with their songwriting and, and also the orchestration and, and, and so on in the production and just really came through on this album too. <laughs> I was going to say, like, yeah, you know, Mott the Hoople were, were great early, and then they really peaked, and then this last one's a huge disappointment, because that's what I thought the story was in my mind. And so this is the one where I have to say they surprised me, because I went back and I listened to this one for the first time since, Jesus, I don't know, 2004 was the last time I listened to the Hoople. Um, and I'm surprised at how much I like this album. This is actually a much better record than I remember it being. I like Marionette a lot. I think the golden age of rock and roll is a little bit hack, frankly. But there's a lot here to recommend it. Before I get to that, though, Scott, what do you think? Yeah, disagree. Um, I, I, I was disappointed by uh, most of this album. I, I think that Spectre-esque production actually harms the record in, in some places. Um, there are a few tracks. Uh, I think Crash Street Crid, Crash Street Kids is one of my least favorite Mott tracks uh i don't think that one works very well I, i'm not enamored of golden age of rock and roll um you know through the looking glass is one of their most bowie-esque moments i think and i'm not sure that works all that well roll away the stone is pretty good and i do think there is one redeeming track here that doesn't just redeem the album but is one of their finest boy i i don't, you guys haven't mentioned alice i think alice is such a fantastic song um, again, it has that sort of rollicking piano pulled through from all the way from Memphis. That same sort of uh, same sort of groove. It has it's the story song, and you know a lot of times Ian Hunter's lyrics are very introspective, talking about his life, talking about his you know the, the loss of his wife, loss of his family. 
in, in, intra-band dynamics. This is this is one that is, is an external narrative. This young Alice who reminds him of Manhattan, and she's an actress, and she's going to be big out west. And and uh, I love the the line. Where he says, uh, "Now I wonder if she wonders if I wonder if she wonders about the times I put her down when she seemed to be right under." Um, it's a it's a really fine I think set of lyrics from from Ian. And in terms of you know melody and music matching that lyric, uh, it doesn't get better than that here. Alice is again. Alice will make my my list of five at the end of the album, but it's the best thing I think on the hoople by far. I, I don't know. I, I think you're being a little bit unkind of the record. First of all, Crash Street Kids, I like just fine. I, I, I suppose that, again, the theatricality, the sort of enhanced theatricality of these later records doesn't do it for you. But I like that one. I like the guitar work on it as well, which is something I don't usually say about this later period without Mick. Um, Roll Away the Stone, though. That's a fantastic song, and I think it was even better. I'm, of course, being the you know Martha Hoople obsessive snob that I am, I'll point out that the single mix is even su- superior to the album version because it has more Mick Ralph's guitar on it. I do want to speak up in favor of both Marionette, which, as I said earlier, is an Elton Johnny theatrical kind of a thing. Uh, but also I, I want to talk about, um, you know, a song like Through the Looking Glass, which I think it's unfair for you to simply dismiss as being. Well, wait, wait, wait. who was the unfavorable comparison you made there in terms of Bowie. what it sounded like? Bowie. Uh, I think it's more it's more Johnish than Bowie-ish, but you're right. It has a glamish aspect to it. I think it works. I also have a really great version of it at the end where Ian Hutner just like goes incredibly vulgar and starts screaming F-bombs at people. You're my boy. See every 
chase them to destinations on through time. You're my diary, yeah. the bitter truth, an expurgated, a misspent you. I do agree that once this group becomes Ian Hunter's like solo project, basically in terms of the songwriting, it loses its focus. It loses its balance. All right. Because Ian Hunter himself wasn't going to kind of find that proper balance in his own solo career for quite some time. Uh, because, you know, I, I don't know if you're familiar with it, what, what he does after this, but, you know, it, it takes him a little while to find his footing. I think it's a fine album, though. And I don't think it's like a bad way to live. I think Roll Away the Stone is a great way for them to end the album, you know, their album career. But it's certainly not the last song in Mata Hoople's career. Uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the couple singles that they released after this. But, God, we can't do a Mata Hoople episode without talking about Saturday gigs. Um, Foxy Foxy is another one they did, which is that's the one where you can say that's Phil Spector crap. I hate that one. That sounds exactly like kind of you know like a, a, a sort of a throwbacky single that does nothing for me. But there's nothing I love more than self-mythologizing Martha Hoople. So their final song, the way they wrap their entire career up before Ian Hunter leaves in the like late 1974, is with one last single called "The Saturday Gigs." You know, and and it's about you know, do you remember the Saturday gigs? We do, we do. You know, do you remember those? Did you come out for those Saturday gigs? You did. We did. You know, saying the bond that they had between them as a band and, and, and their audience, it kept them alive. It was something worth sustaining. It meant something to them. And, of course, it wouldn't mean anything if it wasn't set to that magnificently anthemic, you know, piano balladry of Ian Hunter's and then the great chorus, which could come from classic era mod. It could come from any era of Mata Hoople. It is a quintessential Mata Sixty-nine was cheap by wine. Have a good time. Watch your side. Float up to the roundhouse on a Sunday afternoon. In seventy, we all agree a King's Road flat was a place to be. Cause Chelsea girls are the best in the world for company. thoughts on that i i love saturday gigs that was a song recorded with uh ronson 
That was the only only the only one with Mick only Ronson. With, with Ronson, band yeah. fell apart right after it, right? Right, and then going back to Foxy, Foxy, I probably would have put Foxy, Foxy, and replaced Pearl and Roy on there. Yeah, Pearl and Roy is all right, but you're right; it's it's a little bit. Fey. It slows the album down a little bit. I thought yeah, after yeah, the yeah. song, you know, I like okay, I wanted something a little more, but uh, uh, and if if Saturday gigs would have been available, I would put that on there too. But uh, but yeah, it was. It, Again, the, the outtakes uh, that were were uh, were interesting, but uh, uh, but what again? I, this is I love the album, and they still had the they had a lot of the same people. They, you know, they had uh, Thunder Thighs on there, who the, the backing vocalists, and they were really prominent on this. Those were the same uh, women that did the uh, backing vocals on uh, Walk on the Wild Side, and right. so used them quite a bit, and. Uh, and so, at any rate, it was just a, a great, a great album. Big tour. That's this is the, this is the, when they came to America with Queen, uh, who were just getting big, and uh, and these gigs were just huge. And uh, and it was a big, big tour. They weren't playing the big stadiums; uh, they were playing two to three thousand seaters. And uh, but they were they they were poised. If they would have kept going, they were gonna. If they had another album in them at this level. They were going to be really big. They were going to be starting to play the big, uh, the ten thousand seaters. Well, they did have another album in them, but unfortunately, it wasn't with Ian Hunter, <laughs> and so we're not going to be talking about that album. No, yeah. folks, there will not be a fifteen-minute discussion of shouting and pointing on this oh. episode. Um, so, what happened, of course, is that Ian left. I mean, Jesus, Neil <laughs> Verdon had left, Mick Rouse had left, and Ian finally says, "Calls it a day after Saturday gigs." You'd think that was the end of Mop the Hoople, but no, they they couldn't help it. They tried to carry on for two more albums. It's like the doors going on without Jim what? Morrison. <laughs> it's like, well, what's the point, mate? You know, and nobody knows those records. They're not available. I don't think you can find them on YouTube. YouTube has everything now. YouTube has weird things made by Korean bots, and it doesn't have these records. Um, it doesn't matter. Mott the Hoople story officially ends here, and there's reunion gigs later on. But we can't do an episode on Ian Hunter's solo career, and that's unfortunate because Ian Hunter's solo career is actually really excellent. The reason we can't do it is because it would take up too much time, I and mean, there's a lot to discuss. Ian Hunter's been making albums ever since 1975, and his first one was a little bit lame. But by the time he got around to You're Never Alone with a Schizophrenic, he was making fantastic solo records. And, of course, this is the guy who did, among other things, Cleveland Rocks, you know, and, and, and a ton of other fantastic music as well. Before we wrap up the show, I just wanted to know if any of you guys had any thoughts about, you know, places that you would like people to look if you wanted to figure out what Ian got up to after he left Mop the Hoople. We all know that Mick Rouse went on to Bad Company. You can hear every single song on that first record if you turn on your That's radio. Right. <laughs> Uh, the, I, for for me, the only Ian Hunter that I really even paid attention to was the uh, the first the first solo, which uh, which I thought was I thought was pretty good. Um, but my you know we did me we didn't mention the live album that came out in November '74, which was the live the the '73 tour the uh, I mean the '74 tour. I don't like it that much with the uh, you know Ariel Bender on it. I, I don't know. thought so. I figured as much. I loved it because it was right in my alley. It had the huge guitars. Uh, the huge guitar sound, and I, I really, it was sloppy, but I, I really loved that album. Right, and that right. still gets, I still give that some time, uh, uh, but uh, yeah, but but I mean, no, I mean, definitely not, not their best, but I thought it was a nice document, and it was kind of fun to listen to. And again, you, you, it's kind of interesting to see how Ariel Bender uh, 
impacted the sound, and that was that was really it was it was impactful. Um, but 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 at any rate, uh, going back to the Ian Hunter solo, um, yeah, you're right. It would take forever because he's gone on and on. I think he still plays, doesn't he? Yeah, I mean, he still does. I mean, those yeah. first like four or five records are all good. Like you got that first one, the self-titled one. It's all American Alien Boys, a pretty good record. And then, like, yeah, then the fourth one is You're Never Alone with a schizophrenic, which, again, I've always used as a great title. That's a great title. Um, all-time great album cover, too, where he takes off his shades and it's just, like, pure right. white energy yeah. underneath his shoes and glasses. <laughs> you know, it's just a great image. But, yeah, the album holds up as well. I Actually, you know, it's a total cheat, but if there's people who really want to know about, like, the whole Ian Hunter story, there was this three-CD kind of, I guess, box set, compilation that came out called The Journey, a retrospective of Ian Hunter and Motha Hoople. It literally starts from 69, gets all like the interesting outtakes, and it goes all through his solo career. Basically, can cover everything you're going to want from him, including like the weird B-side versions of Cleveland Rocks and stuff like that. That would be my cheat code. My cheat code, unless you want to get like 17 albums, uh, which we may one day, hey, if this show runs long enough, we may cover all of those. Scott? Mm-hmm. Maybe he'll still be with us. I, I, uh, the only thing uh, I've heard the schizophrenic uh, album, uh, I haven't dug deep enough into the solo uh, catalog to have any true recommendations. Other than, I, again, I'll just point to that Friday's performance, which is readily available on YouTube, of Ian Hunter and Mick Ronson doing uh, um, "Once Bit and Twice Shy," and it's just, it's, it's just they're they're, they're on fire. Uh, it's just an outstanding, you know, five minutes worth of live music. On, on ABC from, I think it was 1980. Just a wonderful performance. That should get you excited, not just for his solo stuff, but also perhaps back to the Mott stuff as well. Well then, I think we've come to that special time of the day. We have, to where uh, we all give you our recommendations for the uh, the two albums from Mott the Hoople that you should own, uh, you need to own really, and the five songs you should hear from throughout their catalog of music. We uh, turn it over to our guest, Steve Miller, veteran journalist, now writing at Real Clear Investigations. Steve, go ahead and give us the uh, two albums people should own, the five songs they need to hear. Well, I think it's going to be obvious that the Mott and the, and, uh, and, and the Hoople are going to be the, the two LPs. With Brain Capers, you know, coming up pretty close, uh, the songs are going to be Driving Sister off Mott, all the way from Memphis off the live LP, uh, Crash Street Kids from the Hoople, uh, Death May Be Your Santa Claus from Brain Capers, and Half Moon Bay from the first LP. I'm also going to throw in the Morgan Fisher documentary on YouTube that you can still see, and uh, Ian Hunter's excellent tour memoir, uh, Diary of a Rock and Roll Star. It's hard to get, but uh, but if you can find it, pick up a copy. Hmm. Uh, I, I think I was pretty clear about which direction I was going for uh, my choices here. Brain Capers and Mott are the two albums that I think that you really need to hear from Mott the Hoople. Uh, Song-wise, I'll go back to the debut album. I think that version of At the Crossroads is just immaculate. Great, great cover version of the Doug Somm song. And the second song is also a cover, uh, Your Own Backyard from uh, Dion. Uh, Those songs are, again, proof that this was a fantastic band on their own right, but also fantastic in interpreting other people's songs and other people's music, too. Uh, all the way from Memphis is on my list of five from Mott. Another one, Honolulu Boogie, fantastic track. And again, uh, I'm not the biggest fan of The Hoople as an album, but I think Alice stands up with the best material that Mott The Hoople put out, and that is also on my list of five. Jeff, over to you. 
All right. Well, uh, our two albums are exactly the same here, Scott. I guess that's why we make good co-hosts. Brain, Brain Capers and Mott. I would also, as I said earlier, as a cheat code, if you really want to get into Ian Hunter's solo stuff, and I strongly recommend it because his, his solo stuff is great, get that three-CD set, The Journey. It's really worth it. Uh, uh, the problem, however, is that I went through my five-song list, and as it turns out, all five of my songs are from those two albums. I can't help it, folks. It's just the way it happens. Those were the songs, and those were uh, the alternate version of The Journey, uh, Death May Be Your Santa Claus, all the way from Memphis, Rose, which is a B-side from the Mott era, and I Wish I Was Your Mother. So that would have been the five. But because you know I'm the host and I can just do this and there's nothing that anyone at all can do about it, I'm going to actually give you a different top five. And these are going to be the top five that aren't from those two records. I'm going to match Scott and say At the Crossroads from Mount the Hoople. I'm going to say Thunderbuck Ram from Mad Shadows. I'm going to say Ready for Love. Are you ready for love? I'd actually prefer hearing Mount the Hoople do it. Mixed squawky <laughs> voice than hearing Paul Rogers singing on Bad Company. Because I just really freaking hate Bad Company. Um, and the Saturday gigs, their final single is the fourth track that I, I would choose. And then my final song is actually going to be a really obscure Mick Ralph's outtake, of all things, from 1971 or so after the wildlife era. It's called Until I'm Gone. And in its own quiet way, it's one of the best little beautiful bouncing ballads that Mick or Ian, for that matter, ever wrote with Mott. And you've never heard it, and I hope you do now. That little, tell me what you're going to do when your first love leaves you chorus is going to be stuck in your head for the rest of the day. And it's just one of those little quiet gems you're going to find hiding around the corners in Mott the Hoople's discography. This is a band that you can go deep, 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 deep into the weeds and you really will not be disappointed secretly they're one of the great groups of their era and i'm just so glad that we got a chance to expose them to you guys today The Political Beats look at the music and career of Mott the Hoople. We thank our guest, Steve Miller, veteran journalist, author, reporter at Real Clear Investigations. That's realclearinvestigations.com. Check out his books, too, including Detroit Rock City. Steve, thanks much. I anticipate that we'll be having you back again sometime soon. I'd love to, I'd love to do it. Thanks, you guys. Uh, Jeff, another one off your big list. And next up on our agenda is uh, our first... Would you say official, first official foray into country the world of rock country? doesn't count, my friend? Yeah. I guess this is the first time we're making it real. So that's uh, that is coming up uh, very soon. Before the summer is out, in fact, we dip our toes into the world of real. Hey, Scott, ha- Scott, how many hours do you think it'll take to discuss eighty-three albums? Uh, I don't 
think we're going to find out because I'm not going to listen to 83 albums, my friend. Uh, <laughs> and I thought we had commitment here on Political Beats. I Never know. Heard. I know. Uh, you can find Jeff on Twitter at Esoteric CD. My name is Scott Bertram on Twitter at Scott Bertram. A reminder to find us at patreon.com slash political beats to support us and help the show stay ad-free. Entry-level, mid-level, upper-level with exclusive content, remastered episodes, and much more over at patreon.com slash political beats. Now the part of the episode where we thank personally, individually, some of our Patreon supporters for allowing us to do the program and keep everything all ad-free. Thanks to Peter Berkland, Dan M., Hutch, Ian Brown, Pablo Gersten, Isaac Barchus, Rick Landrum, Chris McCall, Adam Banker, Richard Tweedy, and Ken Finley. Thank you all for supporting us over at patreon.com slash political beats. You can subscribe to our feed for new episodes, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or go right to nationalreview.com. Click, listen, leave reviews where applicable. You can find us on Facebook, also over on Twitter. Join the conversation at political underscore beats. This has been a presentation of National Review. This is Political Beats.